Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. I mean, there is nothing like being in an active combat zone, really. The peak's always there. There's always something that's going to happen. It makes you feel so alive. It is better than sex. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the possibility of a lot of money. This is True Spies. Episode 91, The Consultants. This week's episode begins deep in the Balkans, in the ancient city of Sarajevo, Bosnia. It was a mess. There was nothing open, there was no light, there was no electricity. Every building was completely pockmarked with bullet holes. It's the story of two men who had the guts and audacity to think they could train the besieged citizens of Sarajevo to rise up against the Serbs. It's a brilliant story. And it almost happened. You have to remember, they were shelling the city constantly, you know, from different areas, different calibers and that. And they were indiscriminate as hell. They'd just shell a neighborhood. In anybody's book, that's not right. Their names are Jeff Miller and Nick Brockhausen, two U.S. Special Forces veterans. It's 1995, four years after the breakup of Yugoslavia and the onset of war in Bosnia. Serbian nationalists encircle Sarajevo with a siege force of 13,000 stationed in the surrounding hills and subject the city's residents to sniper attacks and shelling. You have to remember, during this time, the atrocities against the Muslim population were all over the news. You know, the Serbs taking all the young men and boys to a quarry and butchering them. 8,000 Bosnian Muslims have been slaughtered by the Serbian forces in the city of Srebrenica, the worst episode of mass murder within Europe since World War II. Sarajevans feared that if their city was captured, they'd be massacred too. People were getting killed, not just ones and twos. It was all over the city. Everywhere the Serbs had a, a shot down onto the city, they put their snipers up. The special forces are known to the public as Green Berets but they call themselves the Quiet Professionals. They're one of the most elite fighting groups in the world. They silently slip into hostile countries to train and lead guerrilla forces. We laid out the plan, basically what we need to do is they need to train up the Bosnians so they can take the ground and hold that ground and make it so that the Serbs or anybody else can't come up there and set up their mortars and start shelling the city again, which seemed perfectly feasible because they had the basic skills and manpower there. So it was just a matter of, you know, trimming it up, shaping it up, putting it into a cohesive form. Jeff Miller has a vision for the kind of elite commando he's planning on delivering to the Bosnian government. It's modeled on the first special services force, which earned its place in history through daring exploits in France and Italy during World War II. Guys armed with small arms and knives 
They could get out there in the dark and take control of the night and basically just make it too frightening for any uh, people from the other side to want to come into that terrain after dark because odds are that they wouldn't get back out. Jeff and Nick have the skills to train such a team. Between them, they've got decades of experience executing military ops and training up guerrilla forces. Both joined the US Army in the 1960s and spent their early years in the military embroiled in the Vietnam War. Jeff Miller, the shorter of the two, bespectacled, alert, full of charm, spent most of his time with the Green Berets in an intelligence role. He's got two things. He's got skill and he's got luck. And you need to have both of them there on the same day at the same time, and he's pretty good at that. And the other thing is he's got a plum. I used to think it was the cufflinks, but he actually has a plum. In a bad situation, he's normally the calmest one. Jeff's a man who likes to dress well. He wears three-piece suits, French cuff shirts, and his cufflinks were a gift from the president of South Korea. Nick, on the other hand, is something of a one-man army. He was in a unit called Mac V. Sog, short for Military Assistance Command, Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, the elite special forces unit of the Vietnam War. We were operating in the enemy's backyard all the time. Small recon teams, six to 10 guys. I had somebody tell me one time, they said, well, I was surrounded once. Well, every time I went in, I was surrounded. That's the nature of the job. So you develop skills there, survival skills, combat skills that are essential and, and special. Then you realize what a small group can do. Moving through the Vietnamese jungle undetected and relying on stealth, Nick's unit undertook some of the most dangerous, some might say suicidal, reconnaissance missions ever, taking the fight to the enemy wherever they were. I had situations where eight of us would take on an 80-man company and bruise them so bad that they would back off. Missions often led to epic gunfights as the team would be compromised and hunted down by a devastatingly superior enemy force. And our first reaction was, as soon as we got hit, we rolled over the top of them. You have to get out of the kill zone. And that kind of applies when you get into what we got involved in later, is that you want to get in, get the job done, get it out. In 1976, Nick moved from a war in the tropics to a cold war. He was assigned to a clandestine unit of about 90 Green Berets based in Berlin, Germany. Detachment A. Detachment A was a, originally planned into NATO's war plans as a stay-behind unit. If Russia decided they were going to come through the Fulda Gap with 55 divisions of armor and that, we would blend into the local population and establish a underground and a resistance. And everything was designed to support that. Detachment A was on 24-hour standby in Berlin in the event that the USSR pushed over the wall from East Germany and invaded Western Europe. Secreting themselves in safe houses, the Det A members would activate once the forward line of Soviet troops passed over their positions 
then carry out acts of sabotage and guerrilla warfare. You know, our training and tradecraft, uh, we actually cross-trained with the German special police a lot of times, where we would do surveillance and counter-surveillance training, actually working with them, surveilling a, a suspect or a group in that. Berlin was full of spies. You couldn't throw a rock without hitting somebody, doing somebody else's bidding. So finding people to follow and people to, to watch and see how they do. Are they doing dead drops? Are they meeting people, et cetera, to sharpen your skills in the hope that when the balloon went up, that's what the Soviets would be like on you. You knew the proper techniques in order to slide one way or the other. The two men met by chance on a remote military airbase in Berlin in 1978. Four years later, they left the service within a few weeks of each other and began a working partnership that's lasted over 40 years. Well, we started, when we first left the military, we started our first contract with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And the whole concept of SWAT and hostage rescue requirements and barricaded suspects and stuff like that was brand new. And that led to the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, who was a police chief in Massachusetts at the time, to come and say, we need this everywhere in the country. Would you guys be interested in putting something together to go around the country and teach this under the auspices of the IACP? And I jumped at it. My wife was tired of the military life. She wanted to get out. And Nick had just gotten out, so we said, let's go give this a try. The two undertook missions for the U.S. government, other governments, large multinational corporations, and occasionally just for suffering individuals who couldn't find help anywhere else. SWAT training and hostage rescue mainly. But by 1995, they were bored and looking to branch out, to do something more interesting, something more lucrative and clandestine the kind of thing that might be carried out by a private military contractor. It was a term that didn't exist at the time, but that's what would be used now. We just called ourselves consultants or security consultants or something. Sometimes there was no name for what we were doing at that time. We'd been out of the military about 12, 13 years when the Bosnia thing came up. We didn't have a label. We were just a few guys trying to do whatever we could do to both be helpful and make money. So what motivates two guys living comfortably in California to move into a war zone? Was it the challenge, the specter of human misery, or the money? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, that's a tough one. Um, you gotta if, eat. If we didn't have a moral compass, we'd have a hell of a lot more money. Yeah, that's true. First off. That's because true. you can always get way better paid by bad guys than by good guys. So there's that. And we never crossed that line and went 100% over to the dark side. We never broke the law. We bent the crap out of it oh, a couple yeah. of times. But we yeah, never well, broke, we broke some laws in other countries, but we tried very hard never to break U.S. law. We always wanted to be able to come home. So between just trying to do the right thing which was certainly part of the equation, to wanting to stay on the right side of the U.S. government, at least to the point where they weren't going to send some 
people in polyester suits to haul you away in a van. That was part of the equation. And then, of course, getting paid, you can't do anything without money. So it's an entire equation. You can't separate the parts that well. Private military contractors, which is what Nick and Jeff had become, play a major role in conflict zones all around the world. Gathering intelligence, providing training, serving as the intermediary between professional soldiers and governments. The global market for the industry today is worth in excess of $100 billion. And the line that differentiates a private military contractor from a mercenary is blurry. However, mercenaries are banned by international law. Private military contractors are not. But it's a dangerous business, and Nick and Jeff needed to be discreet. And privacy was something their clients wanted. So they set up a front company to give them cover. It was a real company. I won't mention what it was called here because that would create other problems, but sort of a corporate veneer. It wasn't very deep. It was like a coat of paint, but that's what we used, you know, to do our banking and stuff. You know, we should have used that as the name, the front, the thin veneer. By 1995, their cover was already established when Jeff had the idea for the Bosnia mission. It must have been CNN in those days that I was watching. They were doing a lot of coverage of downtown Sarajevo being mortared from the surrounding hills. And some of those mortars were landing in the central marketplace, and there was women that had been killed, children that had been killed. And I just thought to myself, this looks like a problem that we could solve. Bosnians needed some sort of capability to counter that, and the best way to do that is to make the terrain that's close enough to be available to mortars untenable for people to come and set their mortars up. Jeff's now living in Fountain Valley, California. He gets on the phone to Nick and arranges to meet him in a local bar, Silky Sullivan's. He orders a couple of drinks, scotch for himself and an ouzo for Nick and lays out his plan. First thing I said was, how much money? <laughs> Nick's initial reaction was less than favorable. Where would they get the money to go to Bosnia to set up a commando school? It would cost millions at least. Yeah, I mean, we've done a number of things before and we, we have a free flow between us and you know, we bounce things back and forth until it eventually gets polished. So you know, it made sense, it was feasible. The question was whether or not we could pull it off with the people concerned for both permission and for the money. The pair set about drawing up a cost plan and a list of possible financial backers. Jeff suggested approaching the Saudi Arabians. He had friends there, rich friends. And because, of course, the Bosnians on the receiving end were Muslim. And it only made sense to go to uh, fellow Muslims to protect their own, especially when you know that they got the financial wherewithal to do it. Seems simple. In September 1995, the two men fly into the Saudi capital, Riyadh, and the stifling heat. It's just amazing. It hurts to breathe. I don't know how people actually live there. They book into a hotel and fix up a dinner with three or four of Jeff's old contacts at one of their homes. 
These were personal friends. Most of it was sitting outside on the balcony after dark. We'd have a little bite to eat and then go sit around and drink coffee, basically, and say, here's what we want to do. Over coffee, Jeff outlines his idea for the commando school in Bosnia. And it would cost about $2 million, but first we've got to get to Bosnia and get an agreement with the government to actually set up a training program for them. If we can do that, will you pay? And they said yes. The plan seemed to be coming together more easily than expected. They had a provisional yes from the Saudis for the backing, to the tune of $2 million. That was enough to train up the Bosnians for a couple of months. They could finance a unit of company strength, which would be 100 to 120 men, plus reserves. Most of the money would go to um, instructors and the cost of moving them to Bosnia, maintaining them in Bosnia, paying them to be in Bosnia. They had everything else. They had all the proper tools, weapons, ammunition, you know, structure and that, you know, and the personnel. What we needed to do was go in and kick it in the lorry and polish it up. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So the Saudis bought into the idea. There's a promise of money. Now our spies need to get a permission slip from the Bosnians themselves. They're given the name and address of a man in Istanbul. We'll call him the doctor. He handles international funding in the importation of arms and munitions for the Bosnian government most of which, at that point, is coming from Iran. So a bunch of Iranian money and material was flowing through the hub at Istanbul and being taken up to Bosnia by means that we never really got involved in. But that was his job. He had been a very close friend of the president of Bosnia at some point in the past. That's how he got that job. So Jeff and Nick fly to Istanbul to meet the doctor and are taken to a fairly disreputable suburb. This is not the city that tourists see. Picture narrow, narrow streets, bad lighting, 
and lots of closed doors. And every once in a while, you might catch a glimpse of somebody loitering in a doorway with a hat pulled down over their eyes. It was like the Casbah, you know, in an old movie like Algiers. It wasn't a great neighborhood. And they took us up to a second floor balcony and uh, the doctor was there with a couple other people. And uh, he was skeptical of us, to <laughs> say the least. <laughs> the doctor thinks Jeff and Nick are CIA agents. He gets angry and the atmosphere quickly grows tense. The worst part is there's always at least three agendas going on. Yours, the one that's your guy you're talking to, and probably somebody else that's in there that, that, that's using both of you to get somewhere else. So you never know what you're going to walk into. It could be, all right, kill everybody in the room because they heard too much. So you're always cautious. You've walked into an unknown situation in the slums of Istanbul. There's no guarantee you'll get out alive. How would you prepare? Well, a knife is always a good idea. Oh, always a knife. In Europe, and that very rarely a gun, although th there are times. But always a knife. I always had a knife. Guns come with a whole set of problems. They're useful to have, sometimes necessary. But a knife is always available. These two never go anywhere without one. Usually a folder or a short dagger, and most, mostly folders. And there's a plethora of people out there that make quality folders that, you know, you don't want it to be too long. You know, you don't want to pull it out and then unfold it, and now it's two foot long. Because you got to put that other foot in your pocket at some time. So it's something that's small enough, flat enough to be uh, put in your pocket, carried on your person without noticing and that. And when you take it out, being able to actually use it lethally on someone if you had to. But Nick doesn't have to use the knife today. After convincing him that they're not CIA agents, the doctor agrees to consider their proposal. And eight days later, he gives them the green light. They have permission to meet the Bosnian defense minister and to pitch their idea to him directly. Time to head to Sarajevo. Which is a whole nother challenge, because now we'd spend eight days of, of our money. Hotel rooms and mild partying in Istanbul. So even though we thought we had plenty of money at the beginning, it was less than it would have been after only one day. So we flew to Paris from Istanbul. We took the TGV down to Marseille. We got on a regular train in Marseille and went across the south of France to uh, Venice. Then we got on another train in Venice and we took that train up to uh, Zagreb, Croatia. Then we got on a bus in Zagreb, Croatia and took it down to Split, Croatia. Then we got on another bus in Split, Croatia and took it to God knows where in the middle of the Bosnian war zone. Over the mountains of the moon. There are two reasons why they decided to take the bus on such an epic journey. The first is economic. They didn't know how long they'd be in Sarajevo. The second, put simply, it's easier to fly under the radar on the bus. When you're coming in and out of the airport, uh, you know, the immigration people know you're there. So does everybody else, and they can start tagging. However, if you arrive on the local bus that comes from a village on the other side of the border, you're pretty much assured you're going to go mostly unnoticed. 
Then we got in a Volkswagen Jetta driven by a teenager and drove on dirt roads for about five hours up and over the mountains and eventually got close to Sarajevo. It was quite a trip. On roads winding over the mountains, the spies slowly approach Sarajevo. And the closer they get, the more destruction they see. We went through the city of Mostar, or went near it, and it was leveled. I mean leveled. It was worse than footage I've seen of Germany after World War II. And all the bridges were gone. So the bus would have to crab and slip and skid sideways down these mud roads and cross on a little floating Bailey Bridge and then struggle to get up the other side back to road level, which was exciting in its own right. The only way in and out of Sarajevo back then was a tunnel known as the Tunnel of Hope. It was a foot tunnel. It was beautiful. Plywood floor all beamed and supported, tall enough to stand up straight in. It was a beautiful piece of work. I believe it's some kind of shrine now. I think you can take tours of it. I don't know, I haven't been back, but I've heard that the tunnel is like a thing that tourists go look at now, but it wasn't that way when we were there. When Nick and Jeff arrive at the tunnel, they're turned away. They don't have the right paperwork. Come back tomorrow. So when we were denied the use of the tunnel at 1 o'clock, 1.30 a.m., our only English translator had been allowed to use the tunnel, so he was gone. And we're in this bombed-out, shell-packed mess of a village. We didn't know what the hell we were going to do. Okay, we're sitting in a tree all night. I mean, it's not like an all-night diner you can go to. We have a saying, we're, we're basically plan B specialists. You know what plan B is? Plan B is when plan A falls apart and you got to pull it out of your backside, something that'll then hammer it together and, and make it work. This particular plan B turns out to be their cab driver who'd brought them on the last leg of the journey. He took them home to his bullet pockmarked house and woke up his wife. They had a spare room, only had one bed, so we had a spoon that night. Woke us up in the morning, she made us fresh coffee. It was a lifesaver. That's the kind of thing that happens when you're just out sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Every once in a while, a little miracle happens. That's what he meant when he said, I have luck. Luck was smiling on us that night. Grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> the next day, the two finally get through the tunnel and reach Sarajevo. As they're standing at the desk checking into their hotel, they witness two women being killed on the pavement outside. I was inside the hotel. He was the one outside at the time it happened. Then. But, uh, you know, life goes on, even in a war zone. You know, people still got to go to work. People open shops. People have restaurants. Cities still live. And it produces amazing personalities like the cab driver. Oh, Fatima. Uh, Fatima. Fatima drives well. Fatima, please look at the road while you're driving. <laughs> you know, they managed to make things work in that. They were told something when they were in Sarajevo, a story that stuck with them, that the Serbian snipers were competing against each other to see who could shoot the most watches off the wrists of the city's inhabitants. But of course, they often missed, they often missed some other person. part of the person. Yeah. 
But that was it, because they were bored and they'd just sit and wait for somebody to come into the zone. And if they were wearing a watch, they'd try and shoot it out and they got some kind of point. A lot of drunk teenagers on both sides. Gotta remember, most armies are teenagers. We were old people when we were doing this, and this was a long time ago, but we were probably around 40-ish, you know, and most of, most of the soldiers are like 18. 18, some of them 17, yeah. 15, and drunk. Fired up on, let's kill somebody. How would you feel in that situation? Surrounded by trigger-happy soldiers half your age. Anxious. You might be having second thoughts about the mission. Jeff, not so much. I'm weird, I love it. And remember, everybody in Europe and America was watching this. So you're at the center of the world. The, the adrenaline is just amazing. Because it never slows down, it peaks. That's a nice thing about a war zone. You know, it, it, you never fully come back to suburbia America in the afternoon in your hotel room. The peak's always there. There's always something that's going to happen. The pair are completely in their element. They're not wearing bulletproof vests or helmets, but they're alert, energized, and supremely confident in their ability to survive the situation. What they need next is some kind of contract or letter of intent from the Bosnian Ministry of Defense to prove to the Saudis that this project has been officially sanctioned. Then our spies can have their money. So our first stop was the Ministry of Defense, which is in the main, they call it the Presidential Palace. It's a big, huge brownstone government building right down, not right downtown, but near town. And we went there. I believe if I remember right, it was three stories tall and they did have an elevator, which was amazing. The minister is away that day, they're told. So they're ushered in to meet his deputy. Jeff does most of the talking and gives the same pitch that he gave the Saudis. What you need is a commando unit. You need people that can get up there into those hills silently and surprise and destroy a few mortar crews. And once that happens, the enthusiasm for being on those mortar crews on the other side is gonna diminish precipitously. Because it's one thing if you just go out in the woods and set up your mortar and kill a bunch of civilians. It's a whole other thing when you find out that that night two other crews were found with their decapitated heads on stakes or something, you know. Yeah, violence, selective surgical violence has a very appropriate effect if used properly. And that's essentially what we wanted to do. The raw material was there. Like I said, there's a lot of teenagers. They'd already been at war for two or three years, so they had combat experience. So it was merely a process of doing this election, putting a training program behind it, organizing it, and then turning them loose on the other side. The Bosnian deputy defense minister liked what he heard. But it wasn't up to him to make the decision, he told them. They'd need to come and make their case to his boss, the minister. And he said he won't be back today, but tomorrow you should be able to get a hold of him. So we had nothing to do but go find a place to sleep and come back the next day. The two checked in to the Hotel Bosnia, and Jeff hit the bar. Well, I went up to you know, clean up and take a little nap in that. And, and meanwhile, he's down there. What's the name of that 
the woman from it was Afghani. I don't want to use her. Uh, yeah, her name. It was a, it was a yeah. it was a very well known yeah. CNN anchor woman. Yeah, let's put it that way. She was in the bar and she's got a hollow leg and an extra liver. Oh god, amazing! She could slam it, and somehow she had hooked herself up with uh, three Norwegians in uniform with their little red berets on, big chests, small heads, who were. I found out later the air traffic control contingent at the airport, which was being operated now by the UN. Which and came for in some handy. reason the the Norwegian contribution to the United Nations effort was to send air traffic controllers. So they're sitting there. So I went in and I I got at that table and and bought a round, and then of course you're everybody's friend. And listen to them tell war stories and learn more as much as I could about the war and was just having a ball. He showed up after his little cat nap and we sat there. I was aghast, I tell you. Aghast. <laughs> the next morning, bright and early, they head back to the ministry. This time to meet the minister himself and hopefully to get his sign off on their bid. We get on the on the elevator. That's when our dreams ended. And there was a guy on the elevator. When we walked into the doors, he was already standing there waiting for the elevator to go up. We rushed in and jumped in the elevator with him. I remember I was looking at him going, God, this guy looks so familiar. I have seen this guy somewhere before. Who oh, yeah. is he? I can't place him. So we got up to the third floor and he got off and he turned left. The man in the lift is Richard Holbrook, arguably the most famous U.S. diplomat since the Cold War. What should have given it away was his hair was perfect. Yeah, he, he had that very shiny State Department look about him, you know. Yeah. Shark skin suit, perfectly coiffed hair. Brooks Brothers shirt. Uh, somebody that you could never bring yourself to trust. Holbrook's here in Sarajevo to declare a ceasefire and to ferry the warring leaders back to Dayton, Ohio, where they'll have to sit down in a bleak Air Force base until they compromise. He's Bill Clinton's personal envoy, and he was arranging the ceasefire meeting at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And everybody in the Ministry of Defense was in a complete jubilation. We have engineered a ceasefire. The war is going to end. Could anything be better? And we're like, yeah, wow, lots of things could be better. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's the worst thing. Yeah, what? You, know, you want to declare peace and break our rice bowl? We had two million dollars. <laughs> calm down. Calm down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that. That happened, you know. Your best laid plans yeah. for mice and men. The president was on a plane to Ohio 48 hours after that. Once all three sides had agreed to a ceasefire, things moved quickly. And you can't blame them. They've been suffering war for like four years. I would have been happy too if I was them. They just didn't have two million dollars riding on the <laughs> I mean, we felt sympathetic. Yeah. I, 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 on the I other hand, the Saudis were sitting there with cash in their hands. Yeah, I felt Yeah, I felt. But good it's not about them. the money. Yeah, well, not entirely. Not but entirely. Let's face it, you know. Yeah. $2 million worth of private contract work slipped through their fingers. Weeks of planning had resulted in a busted flush. For Jeff and Nick, the mission was an invigorating challenge. But there's a lesson to be learned. Life's not like the movies. First off, there's no script. 
It doesn't come out the way you planned. It never comes out the way you planned. This one had a particularly dramatic departure from plan at the last minute, but nothing ever went according to plan. You're always making things up and sort of flying by the seat of your pants, and you don't know the negative consequences are always looming out there. Like we were talked about when we said, well, at least he didn't kill us in Istanbul. That's a real thing. In the movies, the hero sort of knows that he's going to win everything and there's there's no conflict of adrenaline and anticipation and fear. But it was an operation that helped pave the way for others. And in some very important ways, Nick and Jeff were ahead of their time. You know, you have to remember something. We were there before Lockheed, General Dynamics, British Aerospace Industries, and that all became private military contractors and took over the, the industry and developed it into the morass that it is now. You know, and when we joke a little bit about the fact that it's about the money, but in, in essence, we have a saying in Special Forces, it's not a job description, it's a way of life. You know, and, and that's what we had been trained and formed, uh, you know, to go and help people help themselves. And, and that's essentially what we were doing in those days and pretty much how we continued to do things over the years. If you'd like to hear more about Jeff and Nick's escapades, you'll find them in their book, Vagabonds, Tourists in the Heart of Darkness. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Here's a taste of next week's encounter with True Spies. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.